So today we turn to day two of this instruction by Padmasambhava on Shamatha without a sign. So for, for those of you who are very gifted, you will have mastered the method from yesterday and you'll be ready to move on. And for those of us like myself, who among the sharp, medium, and dull faculties are in retarded faculties, one step lower than that, and we have to take our time. Uh, but it's time well spent. So what I'd like to do, in accordance with that, what I often do is show you the root text. I mean, what did Padmasambhava actually say, according to this text, which has now been practiced for about 600 years, so it's very well-tested medicine. So you can hear exactly what he said, and then insofar as when we're having the guided meditation, then you can see my interpretation. And so this is how I think Buddhism has evolved and assimilated into one culture, how it's kept contemporary, and how it's maintained its authenticity, its integrity over the centuries uh, by people, by generation after generation, not just parroting what was said in the last generation, as if it's just a whole hundred generations of tape recorders, because then it's just dead, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't live, it's just a recording. So that's one extreme. And the other extreme is just making up your own stuff and saying it's Buddhism because I like it and I'm a Buddhist, so therefore this is Buddhist. And that happens an awful lot these days, people importing all kinds of stuff just because they like it or deleting whole large sections of the Buddhist teachings, even to the point of saying the Buddha never taught them for the simple reason is they don't like it. So that's a way to hasten the degeneration of Buddha Dharma in the modern world and the way to allow Buddhism to still continue to grow. It's like a living organism that's adapting and changing to a changing environment, maintaining its integrity, but also being alive, dynamic, and in constant relationship with, in dialogue with what's happening right now. I think that's a very clear middle way. You know? So Buddhism isn't static. At the same time, it's not just whatever you think it is, and it doesn't stop being something else just because you don't like it. And so, as I said, I think those are degenerations of Dharma, to try to maintain the living vitality and integrity of the Dharma, then it, we're in constant dialogue with these generations and generations of tremendous sages from the past who have contributed so deeply to this tradition. So what I'd like to do now, very briefly, just read you one short paragraph of this next phase. And he says that, do that for one day. So you're going to get, in, again, one day's instruction. And then I'll give a guided meditation. And then you'll see for yourself, you know, how close am I keeping to what Padmasambhava was teaching? Am I adapting it? Am I just... So there we are. You can see for yourself. So he says, then position your body like before. Here's how we start. Then position your body like before. Well, if you're comfortable, then of course the best posture for meditation is sitting upright. If you can be in the full lotus, very good. Half lotus, very good. The bodhisattva position, which is what I'm sitting in right now, no claim to being a bodhisattva, of just your legs flat on the ground, very good, very good. You want to have plenty of support and feel comfortable with your spine straight. So he says, position your body like before. Cast your gaze downwards, which is very gently downwards. Gently release your mind. And without having anything on which to meditate, gently release both your body and mind into their natural state. Again, he says, having, un having nothing on which to meditate. And without any modification or adulteration, place your attention simply without wavering in its own natural state, its natural limpidity, which means transparent and luminous, its own character, just as it is. Remain in clarity and rest the mind so that it is loose and free. So that's how you start. And now he's going to set up an oscillation. 
And here's how he does it. He says, now, alternate between, who, uh, between observing who is concentrating inwardly and who is releasing. So who is the agent that's drawing the awareness in and then releasing it out? Who's doing that? Somebody must be doing it. Isn't it you? But he said, if it is the mind, ask, what is that very agent that releases the mind and concentrates the mind? Because you're, It's a good question now. Now we're definitely encroaching into the territory of Vipassana. Again, there's a question here. That is, we would say, this is good Tibetan, good English, good any European language. I'm focusing my mind. Good English. I'm doing that to my mind. My, I, I'm, I'm raising my hand. I'm putting my hand down. Right? I'm focusing my mind. Perfectly good English. And so now what does that mean when I say I'm doing this? Who's focusing the mind? Who's releasing the mind? And then this is not designed to set up a whole bunch of cogitation, start writing a philosophical tome on the nature of human agency and this person says this and this person says that. This is radically empirical. Okay? It's going right into your lived experience of being the one who's doing it. Because you know it's, it's not, I'm not doing it, you know that. You know there's no other force doing it. Right? Nobody's taken over control of your mind. You're doing this because you chose to do it. And if you choose not to do it, then that's your choice also. So, and then you do it. You choose to do it, and then you do it. You release, and then you arouse, focus. You release and arouse. So, who's doing it? What's doing it? He says, what is that very agent that releases the mind and concentrates the mind? And steadily observe yourself. Probe right in there. I like to call this a cognoscopy. Like you have a colonoscopy. We're looking deep inside and seeing all the goodies that are there. Uh, this is kind of looking deep inside. What's the nature of the agent? It is really asking the first question that we see in the Western tradition, the Delphic Oracle, know thyself. That's thousands of years ago. So this is a recurrent theme throughout the wisdom traditions of the world. He says, what is that very agent that releases the mind and concentrates the mind and steadily observe yourself, then release again? So we have this oscillation. And then he comments, by so doing, fine stability will arise. In other words, he suggested day one, that oscillation as being a very effective method for overcoming laxity and dullness, laxity and lethargy, remember? Without introducing some under faculty or method of introspection and applying remedies and so forth, he said, just do this. That was yesterday's lesson. And now he's saying, come right in upon the agent, right in upon yourself, and then release in and out, and this will produce fine stability. Okay, in other words, overcoming excitation. So, very simple. When I say simple, of course, I never mean easy. Pretty much never. But simple it is. This is not complicated. But now he has a, he has a real showstopper here. He says, by so doing, fine stability will arise. So in other words, this is the shamatha method. Shamatha designed to develop stability and vividness. And you may even identify pristine awareness. So if you're very gifted, this simple practice, just observe yourself, release, eh, then you just break right on through. Break on, remember? Break on through to the other side. Hippies of the world unite. But it's exactly that. It is breaking on through to the other side out of this insisted, insisted little cocoon we have 
of I, me, mine, my mind, my substrate, breaking on through to the infinite side. That's Rikpa. And so do that too for one day. Okay. So for those of you who are gifted, you probably don't even need a guided meditation. But I'll go ahead for those who are left gift, less gifted like myself. So close down the computer and please find a comfortable position. This practice can be done effectively if and only if there's a deep core sense of ease, of relaxation, of looseness in body and mind, together with the respiration flowing unimpededly, freely, naturally, effortlessly. So step by step, settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, and your mind, settle in a state of relaxation, stillness, and natural clarity. And for a little while, calm the discursive mind, the obsessive compulsive flow of ideation. It is a common practice to count 21 breaths, one brief, succinct count at the end of each inhalation. Or if you prefer simply to practice mindfulness of breathing without counting, which is fine.
and let your eyes be at least partially open. Cast your gaze downwards, utterly at ease, loose, relaxed, without focusing on any object, without meditating on anything or doing anything. Just rest your awareness in its natural state, which by nature is cognizant and luminous. And simply be mindfully present without seeking to alter your awareness in any way, simply sustaining the flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Sustaining the flow of clear cognizance. Alternately arouse, focus. Concentrate your awareness in the present moment, but without focusing on any object. Just bring it into the immediacy of the present moment. And then still sustaining that flow of, co of cognizance, of knowing. Release your awareness. Alternate between arousing and releasing in conjunction with the in and out breath if you find that helpful. Or otherwise, simply set your own rhythm.
now ask, what is it that is arousing and releasing the mind? As you've decided to do so, and you implement your desire, sustaining a flow of volition, of will, to continue this oscillation, Invert your awareness right in upon yourself. Observe yourself, the one who is in charge, the one who is meditating, controlling your mind. Examine closely and release. Invert and release. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
Onasu. Any questions regarding this practice? Or is it actually very simple, but is it clear? Yes, go ahead, Beata. Thank you, Lisa. I have a question regarding the oscillation. Mm -hmm. um, it feels to me uh, when it gets really concentrated, mm -hmm. when I'm really in the awareness, um, relaxation and concentration move together or come closer and closer. They merge, kind of. Mm -hmm. So. Um, the question is, shall I go? I don't know exactly where to go when I should relax. It seems um, it's pretty much the most relaxed it can get. Understood. Yeah, very good. You are referring to, here's my interpretation, you're referring to exactly what Padmasambhava has in mind in terms of where this is going. Right? It can happen in early phases of meditation that if one just simply tries to maintain an ongoing flow of quite intense, clearly focused, concentrated awareness, uh, that after a while it starts getting tight. It can happen, right? Uh, it can happen. And so if it's starting getting tight, then this winds up being counterproductive because we know relaxation, stability, vividness. And so to ease our way into it, again, like uh, there's such a thing as isometric exercises where you just exert an ongoing force, right? And that's one way it develops muscles. But the more standard way is exerting and releasing, exerting and releasing. And so um, this, this crops up, this oscillation uh, crops up repeatedly uh, in Padmasambhava's teachings, especially pertaining to shamatha. And it's designed to ease us into it. And so that we're kind of pushing the envelope of clarity, of vividness, sharpness, acuity, high resolution, as we arouse the attention. And I am choosing my words very carefully. I would say arouse or on occasion, invert is good. Because when he says, observe the, observe, ob observe the agent, observe yourself, well, that clearly is an in inversion, right? So that's not, that's not bad. So arousing the attention, inverting the attention, that's fine. I would not use the word contract. Because contract definitely entails a tightening, and, we and that's not what we want. So here it is. And so we have that arousal, that heightening, and then that release. And every time we release, then the idea is push the envelope, go deeper into that sense of ease, of relaxation, of looseness, of comfort. And so it's kind of like we're expanding the limits of getting sharper and sharper and yet more and more relaxed. And we're just doing it back and forth, back and forth. Uh, now, frankly, there, we haven't hit the end yet. We haven't hit the end yet. And so one can keep pushing the envelope, going for even... Sh there's, there's such a thing as coarse, medium, subtle laxity unless you're way, way up there on the path of, of shamatha, namely stage eight out of nine preceding shamatha, there's still room for improvement, for greater clarity. But likewise, the whole trajectory of shamatha in these nine stages laid out so clearly in the Indo-Tibetan tradition, that same trajectory is going to subtler and subtler degrees of effort until when you get to the eighth stage, then the ninth stage is completely effortless, which indicates that must be extremely relaxed. And yet there it is, you've hit the pinnacle of clarity 
but you've also hit the pinnacle of relaxation because it's actually effortless. So there's a lot of room for growth in both of these. But again, where, where this is going is having, having oscillated for some time, then when you feel for the time being, this is as good as it gets. Not forever, but for today. This is, this is as sharp as I can get. This is as relaxed as I can get. Then you're perfectly welcome to release the oscillation and then just stay there right in the middle. Continue there. Okay? So as I've mentioned before, this is the most elaborate, detailed, and step-by-step -step presentation of shamatha without a sign that I've seen. Uh, there may very well be many more that are more elaborate, but I'm just not very learned. This is what I've encountered, and this is what I was taught by Gyatso Rinpoche. So I received the oral transmission on this and the explanation. Uh, but if we want to go for the most concise uh, of all presentations or explanations of this practice that I've ever seen, and I don't think it gets much more concise than this, then you go to Tsongkhapa, who had one of the most elaborate minds in the whole history of Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, the expanse of his erudition was staggering. But here it is with incredible intellect, enormous erudition, mind-boggling erudition. When it comes to this practice, he actually gives the simplest explanation, the shortest explanation I've seen anywhere. And he simply sa says, rest your mind in the sheer lumin luminosity and cognizance of awareness. <laughs> and that's it. No more. So you've already come to that, just resting there. So you made a very swift transition from Padmasambhava to Tsongkhapa, right? But we can do this again and again, not being complacent from week to week, month to month, thinking, no, I've already gotten as clear as I can. I'm already as relaxed as I can. Mm. Because if one follows this in the big picture, well, between achieving shamatha and achieving the enlightenment of a Buddha, one can say there's a lot more clarity in the Buddha's realization. And then in terms of the relaxation of shamatha, where you're relaxed only when you're totally still. Right? The relaxation of achieving shamatha, which disappears when you get off the cushion and you have to do a lot of stuff and you have to exert some effort, it is said in the Mahayana tradition that all of the Buddha's, uh, Buddha's activities are effortless. Spontaneous and effortless. So then the, we can then have maybe, the, maybe say there's seven perfections after the perfection of wisdom. I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek. I'm not adding another segment to Buddhism. I'm joking. But after the six perfections, there's also the perfection of relaxation. You know, because that's it. If, you're, if a Buddha's activities are as effortless as the moon's activity of casting its reflection in a thousand pools of water, or 10,000 pools, or a million pools, and it takes no more effort on the moon side to cast one reflection than a million reflections. It's only up to the pools. If the Buddha's activity is like that, just spontaneous, manifesting wherever, wherever it's possible, wherever there's need, wherever the circumstances are right, then this is not simply the complacent, internalized effortlessness of shamatha. It is effortless that carries through all of activity. So I'm giving an elaborate, because it's a cool question, uh, a little bit more now relating to the question from yesterday from Aga. And that is, because I'm going to go right into Dzogchen, you know, just, I can't stray too far. I keep on kind of like, like, like a rubber band. I keep on coming right back to Dzogchen. Uh, or like a yo-yo. Um, but in Dzogchen, when one is a bona fide Dzogchen practitioner, optimally having achieved shamatha, gained realization of emptiness, and then resting in this open presence in Rikpa. Rikpa Choksha. Resting in Rikpa. Okay, not just open presence, but as I've said now many times, the open presence in Rikpa. It is said now, remain in utter inactivity. That's what it says, remain in utter inactivity and don't do anything, don't try to modify your mind in any way 
and don't do anything, right? But then we can look at some of the greatest Dzogchen masters of recent history, like Dingo Kenzirimoche. After his 17 years in retreat, he was a dynamo of activity. Dynamo. He wrote so much. He just, just the, how do you say, the magnitude of his service to Dharma, his teaching, his writing, giving empowerment, service of all kinds. He was a dynamo. Dujum, Rimba, Dujum, Dujum Rinpoche, the same, the late head of the Nyingma order. Consummate Dzogchen master, tremendously traveling all over the world, teachings, empowerment, so much activity. And this goes for other of the greatest of the Dzogchen masters through history, right? So then one can ask, oh, I see you, um, you kind of slipped up there a little bit. If one wants to be, you know, a bit snooty, they say, oh, Dingo Kenzo it looks like you kind of discontinued your, um, your Dzogchen practice when you left your cave. You're doing all this stuff. And the Dzogchen teaching said, don't do anything at all. Well, of course, that's silly. So what's going on there? When it says, don't do anything, my interpretation, when it says, don't do anything, it's saying, don't do anything out of your ordinary sense of personal identity as a sentient being. Let all of your activities flow spontaneously and effortlessly from Rikpa. So there you are abiding simultaneously in Dzogchen practice, abiding in the utter still stillness. One can almost say the primordial stillness, the stillness beyond the three times. You're resting in that Rikpa, in the stillness beyond the three times. It's not just holding still. It's like you're in a place where there is no movement. You're abiding in Nirvana. You're abiding in pristine awareness. At the same time, you're not absorbed in that so that you're only inactive, so that once you become a Dzogchen meditator or a, a master, you never move again. People come and say, oh, would you please give me teachings? Sorry, but you don't even say this. Just, uh-uh, you know, except that that was too much. Oh, I take it back, you know. Uh-uh to the uh-uh. You know. um, there's activity. But the deeper you are in your Dzogchen practice, the more effortless that activity is. The more you are emulating the activity of a Buddha. Because you're resting in Buddha mind. So I say all of your activities, including going for a glass of water, you know, going shopping, uh, are all just these spontaneous displays, these spontaneous emergences, where you're utterly still, but the activities are taking place. And what's the motivation for it? Why are you doing anything? Why didn't you just stay in your cave in solitude? It's compassion. It's very easy. It's compassion. That's the only really reason to be active. Because you don't need to be active for yourself. You're Dharmakaya. So the manifestation by way of Sambhogakaya, Namanakaya, that's all for the sake of sentient being. That's called gender, para-artha. You're serving the needs of others, whereas you're resting in Dharmakaya, that's sva-artha. That's your own well-being. That's for you. You get to enjoy Dharmakaya. Sambhogakaya, Namanakaya, that's for everybody else. So we see here Dzogchen, it sounds very, very esoteric, very rarefied, very mystical, and yet this is absolutely stand for the whole Mahayana tradition, that the enlightenment of a Buddha is said to be minepe, minepe changshup, the enlightenment that, is not, that, that does not abide, non-abiding nirvana, which is to say that the Buddha's mind, the Buddha is not immersed in nirvana such that he is oblivious, he, she, is oblivious of samsara, is not simply absorbed in some transcendent, inconceivable domain of reality, nor, like a sentient being, is a Buddha simply immersed in samsara, caught in the wheel of samsara, propelled by karma and klesha. But it's non-abiding. And it's not only non-abiding, neither immersed in, 
samsara to the exclusion of nirvana, immersed in nirvana to the exclusion of samsara, but equally present in both, absorbed in neither, and then the real clincher here, which is, I think, actually literally inconceivable to a sentient being, is that Buddha's awareness of nirvana and samsara is non-dual and simultaneous. So that would be good to know. But you'll know that, that one only when you are a Buddha. Okay. So this is the Vajrayana generally has this lamde, taking the fruition as the path. That's a constant theme throughout all of Vajrayana. So not just taking the path as a path to the fruition one day in the future, but actually applying skillful means to take the fruition as the path itself. And nowhere is this more crystal clear than in Dzogchen, whereas the path of practicing Dzogchen is such a powerful emulation of already being a Buddha. Right? But without all of the elaborations of visualizing yourself in an archetypal Buddha and reciting mantras and visualizing this and directing your pranas here and there and all of that, all of that is great value. It's very, very deep practice, stage of generation completion. But Dzogchen is a path of a path without elaboration, a path of utter simplicity. So that was a long, roundabout, meandering response to a very good question. But it's clear? Very good. All right. That's enough for now. I'll see you at 4.30. <laughs>